Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together now to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21. Last week, we returned to Luke's Gospel after a study of the Old Testament book of Daniel, followed by a series on the seven churches of Asia Minor in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, these three books, Daniel and Revelation and Luke, are closely connected. In each of them, we find wonderful teaching on a subject that I find almost every Christian I meet is very interested in, and that is the end of the world. And the prophet Daniel received a series of visions over the course of his lifetime in which God revealed how history was going to unfold through a series of empires that ultimately would culminate in the rule of his Messiah upon earth. The apostle John likewise also received a series of visions while he was exiled on the island of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. But Luke is more of a historian than a prophet or an apostle. It was Luke who chronicled the history of the first century church in the book of Acts. And he has compiled this gospel, which bears his name, through interactions with those who actually walked and talked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. We have to put all the information that we find in the Bible together concerning the end of days to get the clearest picture of what God would have us know. So our text today is a portion of Jesus' answer to a question posed to him by his inner circle of disciples. The question is, what will the sign of the end be? Now that's a good and important question. Evidence that it's a good question is that the Lord's answer is recorded in three of the four gospels in the New Testament, but also by the fact that this is the longest answer he gave to any question that was posed to him. So let's read our text. I'm gonna back up to verse seven and read through verse 19. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see to it that you are not misled for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom that there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you the utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, yet not one hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this his word. Now remember that I said we had to put all the information together that we have in the New Testament and the Old Testament to get the clearest picture. There are two other places in the New Testament where we find this same conversation. Matthew chapter 24, verses one through 31, 
and Mark 13, 1 through 37. In Matthew, we are told that the conversation that started in the temple ended up at the Mount of Olives. And Mark gives the detail that the disciples who asked this specific question were Peter and Andrew, James and John, the very inner circle. And it was likely Peter, from what we know about him, who voiced the question they were all wondering about. As we saw last Sunday, the sign of the beginning of the end would be the destruction of the temple. Jesus said, as the disciples were pointing out the opulence and the splendor and the beauty of the temple, that not one stone would be left remaining upon another. And of course, that prophecy was literally fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian led his Roman forces into Jerusalem, sacked the city, and utterly destroyed the temple. The second sign we saw was that there would be a series of men claiming to be the Messiah that would come during this period. Secular history tells us that's exactly what happened. Our Lord's warning to his followers was one of discernment. He says, don't believe them, don't follow after them. And that brings us to the third sign that the end is near, and that is the uh, proliferation of warfare. Look at verse nine. He says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place first. Well, it's more than classic war where two armies line up against one another. There's a word here which means unrest. One translation renders it commotion. There's gonna be wars and commotion all over the world. Well, there has been violence and warfare and unrest since man was removed from the Garden of Eden. It began with Cain and Abel and has continued today. But I think the point that he's making is that there's going to be an increase in occurrences of political unrest and even warfare as the end approaches. Now, we've been limited up until the recent past on how deadly warfare could be because it was difficult to travel long places and uh, difficult to communicate with armies. And yet today, there's no limitations at all. At, at a push of a button, uh, countries could destroy one another. And we had limited knowledge, but now every time there is a rumor of even uh, unrest in any obscure country on the other side of the globe, the entire world has access to it through the internet. But he says here it's going to be nation rising against nation in verse 10. Ethnic group against ethnic group. I take that to be internal strife, civil wars, not just two opposing geopolitical units. And, and we hear about that almost every week, don't we? Even in our own nation, there are people who are fellow countrymen who are at odds with one another. There's riots, there's protests, there's looting, not to mention the full-scale warfare going on in other parts of the globe. And so if you're like me, you've wondered what should a Christian's response or reaction be to all of this news? Well, he says, don't fear, don't panic, don't be overwhelmed. The reason is it's all working out according to God's sovereign plan. He has not lost control, even though it may seem from our perspective like he has. And Jesus quickly points out that there's much more to come. That's just the beginning, he says, when you start hearing about these things. Uh, the next sign that the end is near is what I've called pandemonium in heaven. Look at verse 11. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now I've included under this point everything that your insurance agent would label a natural disaster. Uh, earthquakes. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I grew up in a region that was along a fault line and occasionally we had tremors. Uh, in fact, when I was in high school, 
um, a seismologist predicted that the big one was going to hit around Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, a lot of people stopped going across that big bridge over the Mississippi River for a few months. We actually had drills when I was in college about what to do in case of a major earthquake. But we hear about earthquakes all over the world. Famines, where there is a, an absence of food caused by natural disaster. A word here he uses, pestilences. And that could be an insect infestation. It could be anything that causes havoc among humans. And by the way, we're going through one of those right now, aren't we? Pestilence, which causes great suffering and fear. And not only that, he says there's going to be fearful sights. And again, when this was written, you had to be actually looking at something physically to see a fearful sight. But now every time something disconcerting happens, it's everywhere. And we get to see every fearful sight right up on our television screens. He says there's going to be great signs in heaven. Now, remember I said the book of Revelation is closely associated with this. And in the book of Revelation, John gives vivid detail of what, what some of these signs in the heavens are going to be like. And it's uh, going to be fearful to behold. Now, note this really is heavens, plural, not heaven. In the Hebrew, there is no singular word for heaven. It's always plural. Of course, this was written in Greek. But uh, the Bible seems to indicate uh, at least three words for heaven. There's the first heaven, which is our atmosphere, the air we breathe and where the birds fly around. There's the second heaven, which we would call outer space. And then there's the third heaven where God lives. Now, Jesus is speaking here, of course, of the first and second heavens. I would never lead you to believe that there'd ever be pandemonium in the third heaven where God dwells, but there is pandemonium and will be in the atmosphere and in outer space. Now, what happened before the destruction of Jerusalem was that there were meteors and signs in the sky. The secular historians note this clearly. And, and there also will be those, John indicates in the Revelation, before the Lord's second coming. Now, remember I said Matthew and Mark also give this conversation. Matthew gives an added detail concerning these events. Jesus said after he talked about the earthquakes and the famines and the pestilence and the signs in the sky... He says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And your translation might say the beginning of birth pains. Now, birth pains are contractions. If you know anything about the way a baby comes into the world, those contractions start minor and far apart. And the closer it is to the baby's arrival, those contractions become more intense and closer together. And I think that's the primary thing Jesus is teaching us here in Luke chapter 21. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been signs in the sky. But as the time of the end approaches, they're going to become more frequent and more intense in their nature. And so in this case, the contractions, if we can make a metaphor of it, are wars and rumors of wars and social upheaval and atmospheric and tectonic unrest. But the birth that comes after the contractions is the second coming of Jesus. But still, another sign occurs leading up until these days. Look at verse 12. He says, but before all these things, that is preceding the earthquakes and the famines and all the other things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors 
for my name's sake. The third sign that we're looking at today is the persecution of believers. Now, Jesus had consistently warned his would-be followers, hadn't he, about the high cost of discipleship. Remember, there was a time in his ministry where literally thousands upon thousands of folks were following him around every day from city to city. But the vast majority of these throngs proved to be faithless. At one point, Jesus asked his inner circle, these men who were with him there at the Mount of Olives now, will you at this time also leave? And Peter says, you alone have the words of life. Jesus told them time and time again that a servant is not greater than his master. He was preparing them for the persecution that would come. They observed with their own eyes how Jesus was mistreated and maligned and slandered and beaten and ultimately crucified. And he says, you can expect the same sort of treatment. Now, now here's a point that you might want to make note of. When times are difficult, and Jesus was predicting that as the time of his second coming approached, times would get more and more difficult, especially for Christians. But when times are difficult, fake and false Christians are not going to stay around. When Jesus started preaching about having to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, the people turned and went back home. Because what was true 2,000 years ago is true today. When, when times get hard, fake Christians are not going to stay around. But don't be upset by this. This has always been the case. And I want to remind you, as I often do, that God has never depended upon a majority, has he? God often is pleased to use small groups of people to accomplish his will. And Jesus seems to be indicating here that this persecution was coming very soon. In fact, it began very shortly after the Lord Jesus' ascension. And as he said, it came from the synagogues. First, it came from the Jewish people who wanted to do away with um, the Christians. Then it came from the Romans. And you remember from Western civilizations, that systemic persecution that came from Roman emperors like Nero and, and others. And that persecution has continued in various ways, in various locations around the globe until this day. We read about it in Europe. We read about it uh, in Asia and Africa, and it's still going on all over the world. Wherever the true gospel is preached, there will be persecution. The Apostle Paul says that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. We living here in America, we would have to admit have been spared the worst of it, at least up until this point. Now, only the Lord knows what lies ahead, but he gave us a little hint. He says there's going to come signs in the sky and disturbances on earth. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be political unrest all over the globe. And accompanying all of that and even preceding it will be persecution. But even if the worst comes here, we have instructions of what to do, don't we? Look at verse 13. He says, speaking of all of these things, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. That's the way the Lord wants us to look at the possibility of persecution. Even if the worst comes, it's an opportunity for us to bear witness to the faithfulness and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read your history closely, you'll find that persecution 
rarely and perhaps never has its intended effect of silencing the church. In fact, just the opposite. It purifies and it strengthens the church. And as many have pointed out, um, the fires of persecution spread the gospel around the world. He goes on, verse 14, he says, So, that is because persecution is going to come, and I've told you about it, because it's going to lead to an opportunity for you to bear testimony to me, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. And so make up your mind now how you're going to handle that. You're not going to settle this with your fist. You're not going to settle it with guns. You're going to depend on the Holy Spirit to give you utterance. That is what to say at the moment that will give Christ the most glory. But verse 16 says it's going to get very personal towards the end. He says, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. That is the, the worst sort of betrayal, isn't it? Jesus knew that kind of betrayal because, of course, he was ultimately betrayed by Judas, a man who claimed to be his friend, who gave him the kiss of friendship, even as he was in the process of betraying him. And what did Jesus say? A servant's not greater than his master. It's going to happen to some of you. Parents. Can you imagine? I think that's got to be the ultimate betrayal. The most unnatural sort of betrayal is that a mom or dad would betray their own child to the authorities. Brothers and sisters, siblings, those claiming to be friends. Then he says very clearly, they will put some of you to death. Now we know that he was speaking specifically at that moment to the inner circle of disciples and we believe that only John, the apostle, was spared a violent martyr's death. And, of course, he was exiled in the Isle of Patmos in his very old age. And so these guys experienced this. He says, you'll be hated by all because of my name. If, if you name the name of Christ universally, wherever you go, you won't be able to escape the hatred. And it's not because of you, it's because of your association with me. He says, it's because of my name. The name of the Lord includes all of the things about Christ's nature, who he is and what he's done and what he's taught. And that's why many people forsake the name of Jesus. And that's why Jesus often said to his disciples to count the cost because it's a high cost, isn't it? He says, you have to be willing to die to self and take up your cross daily and to follow him if you're going to be his disciple. Now, it seems very confusing what he says next. He had just said in verse 16 that some of you will be put to death. And then in the same breath, he says in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Now, what does he mean by that? The Bible says that the Lord knows even the number of hairs upon our head. I don't think he's talking about our literal hair here. He's saying that you will never escape the sovereignty of God. He will never let anything happen that is not ultimately within his will. So everything that will happen will either be because he allowed it or caused it. But I think ultimately there he's talking about our souls. It's the same word we talk about perish in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish 
but have everlasting life. That's not a promise for you to live 10,000 years on earth. He's saying that ultimately your soul will never perish. The, the real you will live forever and ever. And that's what he's saying to these men. Don't fear. Remember what he said to them earlier. Don't fear the one that can kill the body, but fear the one that can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Now, they can do their worst to you, and they did. They tortured Christians. They imprisoned Christians. They starved Christians. They put them to death in the most cruel forms and ways. And yet, ultimately, not one of them was lost. Didn't Jesus make that promise when he talked about himself being the good shepherd? I know my sheep. They know my voice. And not one of them will ultimately perish or be lost. Verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's another way of saying what we find throughout the New Testament. Those that persevere to the end will be saved. He's not talking about the possibility of losing your salvation. You can't. He's saying if that you're truly born again, you'll prove it by your perseverance and through your endurance. So let's make some application to this text. This passage is a call to certain things. First of all, it is a call to courage. Jesus is emboldening his disciples. He knows that very soon he's not going to be with them any longer. And he knows they're going to face these things and he's being brutally honest about it. But he's telling them, don't fear. He's not reading this list of horrors <clears throat> so that they'll cower in fear. He's listing this list of horrors so that they will take note that he's sovereign over all of it. That when it seems like in the near future that they've made a poor choice in following Jesus, that he's abandoned them, he wants them to remember his words, that he would never leave them as orphans, and that this was all within his plan. It's a call to courage. It's also a call to faithfulness and endurance. We make a terrible mistake in the evangelical world when we make evangelistic appeals to people on the grounds that if you're lonely and life's difficult and if you want everything to go better, try Jesus. I've seen billboards on the roads that say almost verbatim those things. The call to follow Jesus is a call to self-denial. The call to follow Jesus is a call to suffering. The Apostle Paul understood that. And he relished the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Jesus. This is a call to faithfulness through suffering. This is a call to endurance to the end. But it's also a call to realism. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't paint a rosy picture? Jesus didn't pretend like following him was going to be the primrose path. He never did that. You know, as, as I look at the way that Jesus did evangelism, how different it is from the way we do. It seems that Jesus sometimes is almost discouraging people from following him. Oh no, you, you don't know what you're asking to follow me. This is a path full of difficult dangers, toils and snares. Jesus is calling them to realism. Remember, they are still living in the illusion that Jesus was going to at any moment raise up an army and defeat the Romans and rule and reign literally from right there in Jerusalem. Now, one day he's going to, isn't he? 
but it's at the end of all of these things. That's why he says back in verse 9, for these things must take place, but the end does not follow immediately. Now, they had no idea knowing that it was going to be at least 2,000 more years, but they were told very clearly it wasn't right away. But they need to live always in the expectation. They need to live with eyes wide open and realistically about the suffering that is to come. But I think ultimately, and maybe even primarily, as I've meditated on these words and the, the same conversation in Matthew and, and Mark this week, to me it was a call to worship. A call to worship. That our God is sovereign over the future. The Bible says that he knows the end from the beginning. Aren't you glad? Because I, I, I'm like you. I, I'm looking at the end of 2020 and someone asked me this morning, what are your plans for 2021? I quit making plans about halfway through this year. I don't have any plans for 2021. We'll see. But the Lord knows, doesn't he? He knows the end. That is the end of all things from the beginning because he was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. And we are called to worship him. He has predicted exactly the way it's going to take place. There's going to be armies and empires that arise. He gives it in vivid detail in the book of Daniel. And it happened just like he said, didn't it? And he said, didn't that in the end, the Messiah is going to come and rule and reign. But up until then, some things are going to happen. First of all, there's going to be persecution of the church. And it's going to become more intense and more frequent as time goes on, the beginning of earth things. Same thing about the natural disasters. There's going to be an increase of earthquakes. There's going to be an increase in famines. There's going to be plagues and pestilence on the earth. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And there's also going to be political turmoil and unrest. And so if you want to put 2020 in focus, I think it's just a microcosm of what is to come. We don't know where we are on that continuum, do we, between the beginning and the end. As I say it again, I'm not saying it flippantly. I mean it very sincerely. We know this. We're 2,000 years closer than when Jesus predicted it. We started living in the last days the second Jesus ascended into heaven. And that first sign took place just a few short years later. When the temple was destroyed, not one stone upon the other. And that's the prophecy of Jesus. And then he gives this prophecy of the things that come before the end. Here's the thing about Jesus' prophecies. They fall into one or two categories. They either have been fulfilled or they will be fulfilled. That's the only two possibilities. Some of these things have already been fulfilled. And it looks like there are others are in the process of being fulfilled right before our eyes. Look, I'm, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of the prophet. I can't give you a date when Jesus is coming, but I can tell you this, he's promised to come again. And he's given us the signs of his coming. And he says, you need to be discerning. You need to have your eyes wide open. Don't be deceived by false prophets and false messiahs. When you see things on the news, earthquakes and wars and tremors and pestilences, don't dismiss that as happenstance. View that as a sovereign clarion call and a warning that Jesus is coming soon. I'll, I'll take it a step further because I had a birthday this week. Every time you look in the mirror, 
and there's more of these gray hairs and more wrinkles around the eyes, don't dismiss that either. Take that as a warning from the Lord that you're going to die. You don't know when, so you better be ready. And friends, I said this is a call to courage. It's a call to faithfulness, endurance. It's a call to realism. It's a call to worship. But it's also a wake-up call that we have a task to do, and it's a call to urgency with the gospel. We don't have time to hide our candle under a bushel basket. Now's the time to redouble and renew our efforts to take the gospel all over the world because that's why we're here. Jesus said to these selfsame disciples, last thing recorded in the gospel of Matthew, go you therefore to all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. That's our commission as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a timely word. We need it. It seems, Lord, it's taken out of today's newspaper, today's headlines on the internet. Father, you promised that as the days approach, there would be an increase in the intensity and the number of these signs. Earthquakes, famines, plagues, we see them all around us. Wars, unrest, commotion, civil unrest. Lord, we see it in our own nation. Persecution. Father, it's been going on for 2,000 years, but we hear about it even more recently. Father, we thank you because you didn't give us this warning to frighten us, just the opposite. You gave it to encourage us that even in the midst of these things, you have not lost control. Things are happening according to your schedule and right on time. And all of it is leading to the second coming of Jesus. And just as the mom's contractions become more intense and more frequent and ultimately lead to birth, all of these things are going to ultimately lead to the Lord's second coming, to his rule and reign on earth. And so we say with the saints of old, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, we thank you that you've given us these signs. Help us to be discerning. Help us to have our eyes open. Help us not to be asleep. Wake us up, Lord, where we slumber. Father, give us an urgency to take the Gospels to our friends and family members and indeed all over the globe. Father, I thank you for this church that I get to be a part of. Father, we pray that you would focus us and purify us and use us in days ahead. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We know who holds tomorrow. You know the end from the beginning. And we're grateful. We trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.